Tonight, I'm lecturing on a topic that is very sensitive to people. Uh, it, it's, uh, so my, my title is, Shall Every Knee Bow? A Look at Christian Universalism. Now, before 1800s, this was not really a concern at all. Uh, you have an instance that people will appeal to that Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, these Cappadocian fathers, held to Christian universalism. But Origen was considered a heretic for this view. And after Augustine's City of God, it was dismissed, and no one even entertained it for 1,500 more years. So you had people like William Law and, and even later Karl Barth, Emil Brunner. Uh, they did not hold to a Christian universalism, but they, they had themselves open to it. Gregory MacDonald, Greg MacDonald, or George, Gregory, McDonald. George MacDonald, sorry. There was a guy named Gregory MacDonald that wrote a book called Evangelical Universalism. That's why I'm confused. But George MacDonald held to a universalism, Christian universalism. I'm not sure if you know that. I know. <laughs> we know where you stand. <laughs> Some people held out for it. Some people asserted it. But it's always been considered. Are you leaving already, Helen? No. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It gets better, and then it gets worse, and then it gets better. Um, <clears throat> Richard Bauckham is a, is a theologian, a scholar, who said that there is no traditional doctrine, a Christian doctrine, that has been so widely abandoned as that of eternal punishment since the 1800s. So for a long period of time, there was quiet. But in the past 200 years, it has skyrocketed into popularity. And people who hold to Christian universalism uh, will say that it is something that is a part of the Christian tradition. And that's why people should allow it. Just like some people ordain women, some people don't. It's just a part of the Christian tradition. Some people allow drums, some don't. Some people allow that all people go to heaven um, and are saved and some don't. It's just, it's an option. But Origen, when he held this view, it was considered heretical. It's always been considered heretical in the church. But it, it's gained a lot of popularity since the Enlightenment. And I think one of the reasons that it has gained popularity since the 1800s uh, is there was a large amount of optimism of what it meant to be human in the Enlightenment. Reason, human reason was capable, unfettered of tradition, of religion, to solve the world's ills, to create peace. It was religion that caused divisions and wars. And so, um, what was believed in the 1800s is that humanity was too good to damn. Humanity was simply too good to damn or to condemn. Um, that's changed because of the 20th century. 
wars, genocides, the Holocaust, and so on, people aren't so good. So now the mantra is, it's not that humanity is too good to damn, but God is too good to damn. So that's one of the reasons for the rise of his popularity. Secondly, is also for the proliferation and the obviousness, the projection, the appearance, I, I don't know the right, right word, but uh, that we live in a very pluralistic world, a religiously pluralistic world. Now in the South, pluralism, religious pluralism meant that the Catholic church was beside the Pentecostal church, which was beside the Christian church, which was Presbyterian. <laughs> um, but religious pluralism now <laughs> is Sikh temple beside the Buddhist temple, beside the mosque, beside the Christian church. That's what you would see in on the 99 coming up into Vancouver, Canada. So how can we hold to an exclusive claim of Christ in the midst of religious pluralism in a way that we didn't have many years ago? So God is too good to condemn. He's too good to damn anyone. And that seems the why there's, there's a rise in even the most fundamental evangelicalism that Christian universalism has been seen. Rob Bell, for instance, he wrote a book called Love Wins. Uh, and that brought a lot of popularity to it. I don't think he's actually the best scholar for it. There's a guy that um, I bought this book. Um, it, it says this by Robin Perry and Christopher Partridge, but really it's about Thomas Talbot from Oregon. And I recommend this book called Universal Salvation, The Current Debate. It's very accessible, very easy to read, and it gives you both sides of the argument. <clears throat> so before I kind of get into my outline, I just want to define Christian universalism and differentiate it from universalism and Christian inclusivism. And then I'll get into my proper lecture. So Christian universalism is simple. It's that all will be saved, no matter if they believe in Jesus or not, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and resurrection. All will be saved through the redemption of Jesus Christ, all things. Uh, I'll explain about, a bit about how that is understood biblically in a minute. But before then, and before I lay out the lecture, I just want to differentiate it between a couple of things that sound very similar, that are very similar, but are not the same. So first, Christian universalism is not universalism. You would think, what's Christian universalism? In fact, some people call it um, evangelical universalism. So what's the difference? So I said that evangelical or Christian universalism is belief that all will be saved through the redemption of Jesus Christ because what he has done. Universalism is different. It believes that whether you believe in Buddha, whether you believe in Allah, 
whether you believe in Vishnu or whether you believe in nothing, all roads lead to the same summit. It doesn't matter what you believe. We all end up in some kind of eternal bliss, even though it's very amorphous and undefined. But that's universalism. That's not Christian universalism. It believes that Jesus really did something on the cross and really did something for all people and all things. So don't confuse the two. But uh, there are deep similarities, which I'll get to later. I also want to differentiate it from something called Christian inclusivism. Um, and by the way, I should just pause and say that I've given this talk like maybe eight times. And there's always someone in the audience or someone listening on the podcast that um, believes and affirms Christian universalism, actually, usually several. And so I'm very mindful of that. Um, I want you to know in the end, I will disagree with it, but I want to show, um, say that I take it very seriously and I want to give it the strongest man argument, not the strawest, strawest man argument. <laughs> uh, I, I want to argue its strength and I want us to feel its weight and to feel compassion for this view before I, before I go on. And it will be a bit tricky, but I'll explain that later. But I just want to say that just so you know where I'm coming from. No big mystery. Okay, so, but Christian universalism should be distinct from Christian inclusivism. Christian inclusivism believes that all people have the ability to be saved. All have the ability to be saved, that they have the free agency to trust in Jesus. And that it means for some inclusivists, that it's possible even after death, they call it post-mortem evangelism, even after death, that when they see Jesus in his pure glory, to say yes. I mean, C.S. Lewis in his, uh, I think it was his reflections on the Psalms, where he says that play, um, he, he differentiates between Cicero, or no, Virgil and Plato. And Virgil speaks about like some emperor and some child that will be appointed and anointed and praised before the world. And he's like, that's just propaganda. He was paid to write that. But Plato said that there would be someone, he wrote this in the Republic, and you can read it, and I've used it many times uh, among people who aren't Christians. And Plato said, <laughs> you know, if there was someone that was truly just, um, that in order to know that they're truly just, they could not live in a just world. Because if they were just in a just world, then maybe the rewards for being just might be the enticement and you wouldn't know their motivation. Mm -hmm. But if they were truly just in an unjust world, then you would know that they were truly just. But if they were just in an unjust world, they would be crucified. Mm -hmm. He wrote this 450 years before Jesus. It's amazing. And so Lewis is like, Maybe Plato will see Jesus and say, that's who I was talking about. That's who I longed for. I just didn't know his name. I didn't know he existed. So Lewis would hold out for maybe a Christian inclusivism. Now, Christian inclusivists are not necessarily universalists. They hold out for the possibility that all will say yes. So some 
Christian inclusivists are universalists. They believe that ultimately everyone will have a chance to say yes, but not, not all inclusivists believe that. They believe that there's a termination date on when you can say yes or no. So the difference, so with Christian inclusivists who are universalists, they believe that everybody will be persuaded eventually to say yes? Everyone will be persuaded to say yes eventually. And I'll, and I'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. <laughs> That is what he says in the great divorce, though. That they ultimately can say no. But the thing is, even Napoleon and these people, he doesn't say it in the preface, but in the, the narrative, he, he, um, he very much paints a picture that hell is locked in from the inside. Mm -hmm. And that Napoleon going back and forth, as long as he was just freed from his madness, would get on the bus and go to heaven. And go to heaven and maybe be reviled at what heaven is, but maybe in time, because the bus is always running. So in a sense, the gate's always open. It's never shut. The bus is never not running. So there is a sense of inclusivism, but he does say to his credit, um, or to clarify, that he said that this is not a picture of the afterlife. This is simply an allegory of what is experienced in the present life. Um, but I, I would think that Lewis holds closely to a uh, Christian inclusivism, that there's an ability mm -hmm. to, to choose maybe in hopefully post-mortem. Mm -hmm. In contrast, Christian Universalism believes that no one will be able to refuse the redemptive work of Jesus. Mm -hmm. They may not know it. They will be forced to choose it. It might be in the moment where they're so hypnotically entranced that they must say yes, or coerced, or, manu or like magically saved, uh, and then they will see the truth. Um, so, uh, so there is, in a sense, a sovereign Christian universalism where there is no choice. God has deemed all to be saved, whether they know it or not. Um, <clears throat> But in this lecture, I just want to say, what drives this view? Like, how can they come to this view? Does the Bible actually paint this portrait that Christian universalism is an option? Is it an option? Uh, is it like women ordination or no women ordination? Is it, is it that type of doctrine or is it an essential? Jesus is divine or Jesus is not. Um, does it hinge that heavily? And what are we to do with, with God if judgment is true? It's a heavy weight that we need to address, and I'm going to address it. But what I want to do first in my talk is talk about what does Christian, why does Christian universalism believe what it believes from the Bible and from external beliefs of, like, philosophy? Uh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the nature of four things, the nature of knowledge, the nature of God, the nature of redemption, and the nature of judgment. And then I'm going to talk about how traditional Christianity understands those four natures, the, the nature of knowledge, the nature of God, the nature of redemption, and the nature of judgment. Mm -hmm. And what I'm going to end on is basically how might we understand the 
defense and the blessing of judgment. That will be the hardest case. You may not believe me. You may not be ready for it. But like I said, I totally believe that there are people who are sympathetic to this view. And I'm actually sympathetic to those who are sympathetic to this view. Okay. That's not pity. Sympathy of sympathy is not pity. I, I really feel the pain. And, and as I'll mention later, I have had close people to me lost in death and I don't know their fate. Um, and so this is not just a theoretical academic exercise. It's one that's deeply personal to me, but it's something that I look to scripture and try to ask scripture. What do you want to say, Lord Jesus? What do you want to say spirit to us? Okay. So let me look at the four natures, the nature of human knowledge, the nature of God, the nature of redemption, and the nature of judgment in turn. So as we look at human knowledge, we see that it's limited. Um, that, that the Christian universalist, I'm going to basically explain the four natures of these things through the Christian universalist perspective. And they say that human knowledge is limited and therefore should not bear weight of someone's eternal destination. How can you be guilty if you don't know? It's not fair. And there's so many ways that it's not fair, that knowledge is limited. In the first case, you can say just not everyone hears the gospel. I mean, just consider those people before Jesus Christ came. I mean, Jesus came thousands of years many thousands of years before he came. What about those people who were not Jewish, who were not the chosen race? What happens to them? Is that fair? They're faithful Babylonians, faithful Assyrians, faithful Mesopotamians. What happens to them? Or consider even then and now, babies. Whether they're unborn or they die very young, before they know, before they have a cognizant understanding mm -hmm. of eternal destination, how can they even make a decision? Or consider those in remote uh, countries. Well, what about those who never heard on some remote island? Maybe in the reality, they have not heard the gospel of Jesus. What is the fate of these people? Loving mothers, loving fathers, dutiful children, servants, sacrifice. What happens to them if they've never heard the gospel of Jesus? Do they have to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord to be saved? The Christian universalists would be like... It's obvious. God wants to extend his love to all people despite circumstance. You also have those people, even though they may hear, they may not hear a true gospel, or they might actually abide in a false gospel. 
Uh, Douglas Copeland is a young man, a gay man who was raised in West Vancouver. He's an international star now, a literary star. He came up with the terminology Generation X. Um, and so Generation Y, Generation Z slash Z um, has been a result of him. And he grew up in an atheistic family, but interested in religion. And he wrote a book called Life After God. It's a fascinating book. I love Douglas Copeland. I love his work. And in that book, he's saying that he's, what's that? It's a novel. And so in that novel, he's traveling on the road and he's turning and he's trying to find meaning. He's trying to find God. Um, and in fact, even in the conclusion of the book, he goes, I realized a secret. I may not be able to admit it publicly, but in my heart of hearts, I need to tell you my secret now. My need is for God. But in the middle of the book, while he's driving, he's turning the radio stations and he hears these Christian radio station. We know people who listen to Christian radio station who aren't Christian because they're encouraged. It's not so dark. It's not so sensual. Well, Douglas Colburn is traveling across um, the country and he turns on the radio and all he hears is televangelists, people who really, well, not tele, radio evangelists <laughs> that really believe in what they're talking about. But the more he listens, he, he's really captured by their conviction. But the more he listens, the more he's unconvinced. And he said, if this is Christianity, I don't want anything of it. Turn the channel. Never hears it again. What about someone who wants to hear the gospel, walks into a church, listens to the radio, hears something, that hears something false or harsh and walks away? What about those who may have been hurt or victimized by the church, by a pastor, by a local Christian leader, trusted friend? What is there eternal fate? Is it all, is that determined, predetermined? Is that, does God look on that objectively and have no compassion? Or what if someone really loves Jesus, but it's all about a health and wealth gospel? They look for Benny Hinn to like, you know, throw his jacket around just in hopes that his power hits them. And if that power doesn't hit them, they lose faith. What's to happen to that person? Is it because they didn't believe in Jesus? They rejected Jesus, but did they reject the true Jesus? You feel the weight of this, right? <laughs> what about people who have tried to attempt to live moral lives based on what they do know? I had a wonderful couple come up from Tennessee. Uh, they just visited for the day. They came all the way to Bowen Island and they just, we had lunch together and they just wanted to ask, what about my Muslim neighbor? They're very kind. They're very generous. They're very sacrificial. And they evoke, they evince greater moral character than we do. How does God look at them? We, we had that question recently here, this term. What is, how does God look at faithful Muslims? Is it just rule-based, faithful Jews? Is it just rule-based? Or is there something of their heart? Right? 
So what if people abide in some quote unquote false gospel? Does God notice that and think you're playing the right, you're playing the right game, but on the wrong team, you're losing. So this is very difficult when we live side by side by people who are so moral and kind and generous who don't share our belief. So what's lacking for the Christian universalist is information. What's needed is if everyone had the full, clear revelation of who Jesus truly is, then they would believe. And so that's why postmortem evangelism is so popular among Christian universalism or Christian universalists. It's because they think, well, it's really hard to get to know who Jesus truly is in the midst of this life because there's so many foibles and sinfulness and other people that surely um, God will um, not judge them based on insufficient knowledge if they had the true full revelation of jesus christ and chose in the midst of that then how could they not choose for jesus it would be inevitable if you saw jesus in his glory and beauty how could you not choose it that's what's needed and that's what god is on the hook for so that's the nature of knowledge um The second thing I want to look at is the nature of God. So Christian universalism says that human nature is limited in its understanding. Um, To think that God would be that to think that God would be so cruel to obligate those who could not know better. For God to be good, the nature of God must be different than we suppose. And so for the Christian universalist, the defining characteristic of God is love. And so you've heard this. God is love. Capital L, love. Love is God. God is love. Um, Now, the Christian universalists, since they are Christian, want to look to the Bible and point this out of why God is love. Mm -hmm. They can look to God choosing a special people and delivering them out of slavery the Israelites out of Egypt simply because he's so kind and merciful and generous of spirit. He didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it and he demonstrated and he wanted people to know it. And then he gave them a law. Well, the centrality of the law, the summary of the law is that to love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength. And the second is like the first to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the summary of the law. So the law, the centrality of love is, um, the centrality of the law is love. The second thing is, well, if God were to show up, you would suspect that you would get to know a little bit more about what kind of God God is. And so Jesus comes, and what does he do? He does not bring a sword. He brings mercy. He, He lays himself out on the cross. He goes out to the Samaritan woman. He's patient with the adulterous woman before the Pharisees who want to apply the law to stone her. Jesus, time and again, is subverting the judgment, the judgmentalism 
the religiosity, the legalism of the Pharisees. Jesus, if anything, is loving. Um, if, if, and so people say, just look at Jesus. God is love. Look at Jesus. And then you see that love is extended in unlikely and unpredictable ways. That love is impartial. That God is impartial. And so you see Melchizedek show up surprisingly in Genesis 14, not a Jew, seemingly. Uh, the king of righteousness is what Melchizedek means. Uh, he's Melchizedek from um, the king of Salam. So if you understand that in Hebrew, it means that his name means the king of righteousness from the city of king of peace. So he really represents peace and righteousness. And Abraham, and he praises the most high God before Abraham, and Abraham blesses him with the tenth of all his goods. And so what you see is that there's this blessing of Melchizedek, and that says that Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek. He's the one who comes from outside the people in order to bless. So what does it say about God, the one who blesses from outside? The covenant people, the chosen people. You see Rahab, the Canaanite uh, prostitute, is that when the spies are sent in to Canaan before uh, Israel is to invade, it's to say, is anyone trust in Jesus, uh, not trust in Jesus, trust in Yahweh? And Rahab says, me. We don't know her motivations, but the story is that she's included, and she's in fact included in the genealogy of Jesus. So you have this sense where uh, God is very kind to, us, to several people outside Israel. And there's even Naaman the Syrian. He's, he's a Syrian. He goes and by Elisha, Elisha uh, is that he is cleansed. Now, this isn't conversion, but you have a sense that Naaman is cleansed by the power of God through the river Jordan. He could have gone to his own rivers, but he was cleansed by of his leprosy in the river Jordan. And Jesus points to Naaman the Syrian and says, hey, do you think that God is going to come to Capernaum first because I'm born here? God came to the Shinnamite widow and he came to Naaman the Syrian and they want to stone Jesus saying, how dare you? How do you, this scandalous to think that God is not going to give his blessing to us first. And Christian universalists have said, we're scandalized as well because we're proclaiming this universal love that God wants to extend. <clears throat> and so you see in Jesus this desire to have a mission to the world and is carried on in the book of Acts as a mission to the Gentiles, which is supposed to start in Jerusalem and extend to the ends of the earth. And so Acts is a microcosm of what the Christian universalist sees of God's action in the world. It starts particular, maybe in Israel, maybe in Jerusalem, maybe in Jesus, but it is to extend to all people through all places until God is all in all, which turns to the nature of redemption. So, the Christian universalist says that the nature of redemption is that it is cosmic. That's not just like out of this world, but it means that it will infect all things. 
It will affect this world, this earth, and everything conceivable, seen and unseen, through the work of Jesus. And so Paul writes in Colossians 1 that all things will be renewed. When he says all things, he means all things, whether seen or unseen. And the Bible gives us confidence that creation itself will be renewed. Then you have in Romans 5, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all live. Well, if through Adam, we are all tainted by sin, not through our choice, but through our birth, through our existence, then it only makes sense if Paul's making this argument that through Jesus, this one man, that we will all live. It's a parallel argument. It seems nonsensical to say that we're all infected and some of us are saved. <clears throat> and then you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, that in the end, God will be all in all. How can God be all in all if, not, if his victory is not complete? How can hell exist and God's victory not be complete? How can hell exist and victory be complete? How can God be all in all? He simply can't. So that God will be all in all, that God will have victory over all things. And then in Philippians 2, which is reference to this uh, lecture title, every knee shall bow and confess Jesus as Lord. Well, what can this mean? <laughs> Except that people are praising Jesus as Savior of all mankind. So the nature of redemption is cosmic, that it affects all of cosmos, including all human creatures. The Bible is clear about this. <clears throat> well, about the nature of judgment. So we, we've talked about um, the nature of knowledge, the nature of God, and the nature of redemption. Now we're talking about the nature of judgment. So the Christian Universalist typically agrees on ultimately all will be redeemed, but they disagree on how that will come about on the means of that redemption. So one view is purgatory. Now the Catholic view of purgatory is that all those who call on Jesus, when they die, they're not complete in their salvation. They're not complete in their sanctification, I should say, not salvation. They're saved, but they're not fully sanctified. And so they go to purgatory until they can work through their sanctification until they are glorified and able to enter heaven. That's the Catholic view of purgatory. But that's not the Christian universalist view of purgatory, and that's not often the view of purgatory for most people. Purgatory for the Christian universalist is that all people will go to purgatory except the saints. But in purgatory, there is an option to call on Jesus to save and to rescue. And so you, you basically have walked into hell, but the door is locked from the inside. And all you have to do is just say, open the door and say, Jesus, help me. After death in purgatory, that's what you need. And as soon as you do that, you're brought into eternal bless of Jesus's kingdom. Um, 
So there's a, um, a friend of mine a long time ago who said, God never takes no as the final answer. He never takes no as the final answer. You can say no a million times, but eventually you're going to say yes. Uh, if you ever read The Shack by Paul Young, and Papa is talking to uh, Mac, the guy who struggles with trusting God because of the disaster that's happened to his daughter. And Papa tells Mac, you can resist me, but I got time on my side. You can resist me for a year, two years, a thousand years, 10,000, a million years. You can say no, 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 no. But in a million years, you're eventually going to say yes. So in a sense, there's going to be uh, a way of waiting for God's waiting and his mercy for you to say yes to his mercy. If you don't say yes, you remain in purgatory. But if you open yourself up to say yes, then you are now in bliss. But it's, it's this eternal waiting season. But some Christian universalists don't even like this idea that there is even a purgatory. Because if God is going to save all the way, why wait? Just immediate renewal. And so some Christian universalists believe that universal salvation is made possible by Jesus's sacrifice. And the judgment was already made. So why is purgatory even necessary? It's not. Just come on in. Jesus paid for your sin. You hated him. You killed people. You abused them. But Jesus paid for that. Come in. Well, the one of the problems, and, and in this talk, there's questions I have for those who are sympathetic to or hold to the Christian universalist position. They have to answer some questions that are difficult to answer. How do you answer them? And one of the questions that's difficult to answer is, what about hell? Why do we find hell on the pages in print in the Bible? Is it a human construction? Why is it on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ who saved us from our sins? Well, Christian universalism believes that hell is not a reality. It's not a place. It's not even a state of mind. It's an empty threat. It's an existential threat. And so hell is secretly untrue. But it's necessary. That's one view. Uh, so the early theologians that I mentioned uh, believe that hell was not true, but they needed to preach it anyway in order to make sure people remained moral. Because if there was no judgment, no hell, no weighing the costs, then what motivation do they have to be moral? Uh, and so they would preach hell in the scriptures, but they secretly did not believe it. And uh, there's many Christian universalists who believe that, that they believe it secretly, but they won't say it because they think hell is useful. Uh, it makes me think of this one friend of mine who said, um, yeah, a jewel in the crown is nice, but hell is really what's, <laughs> what drives me. Uh, now, we should be careful. Um, the Christian universalist is saying, are we driven by fear? 
because uh, we had a person who came recently and said, if we remove hell from evangelism, do we need, do we even need to evangelize? Is hell essential to evangelism? Think about that. Now, John Hick is a theologian and a scholar who said that he, he worked out a different way. He doesn't, he believes that hell is not real in a sense. From God's perspective, hell does not exist. But from a human perspective, it does exist because it means that there's a, there is a choice. Do I choose hell against God or do I choose heaven for God? It's an existential choice. And so from the human perspective, do I want to choose God or do I not? But from God's perspective, in the end, it will all come out in the wash. And then there's others who say, come on, let's be real. If, if hell is untrue, it's unnecessary. We don't need motivation by fear. We need motivation by love and by thanksgiving. So it just needs to, we just need to get rid of hell. So the nature of judgment is simply not there. Okay, so now I'm making a transition. Um, I'm turning to the traditional view. Uh, now, we have to ask, are, is the traditional view just an option? Is it somehow more true? Is it so true that Christian universalism cannot be true? Is it mutually exclusive? If judgment does exist, if hell does exist, how are you to say that God is good? Because ultimately, the Christian universalist wants to say that God is love. And if this God locks up somebody into eternal torment, how can you say that you can experience delight and goodness forever with this God? What, what kind of God is this? <laughs> exactly noah he's going to build an ark right a, a very dog bark yeah nice nice <laughs> now i want to say that before i begin this is i'm very sympathetic to the view of christian universalism uh i believe that christian universalism has a godly desire now, John Piper, when Rob Bell wrote his book, Love Wins, he had a simple tweet, farewell, Rob Bell. John Piper is like, you're out. You fell outside of orthodoxy. Um, now, he, Rob Bell did fall outside of orthodoxy, but I don't want to give him such a summary judgment. I'm sympathetic to Rob Bell. I don't love Rob Bell, but... I'm sympathetic to what he wants, and, and he believes that Christian universalism is a pastoral response in a pluralistic world, is his words. Now, um, the gist of his words. So I'm sympathetic, and I believe it's a godly desire, because in 2 Peter, it says that, uh, that God is patient with us so that none shall perish. So it's a godly desire that nobody should perish, that no one should suffer separation from God and his goodness and from his blessings and from his righteousness. It's righteous to not want God um, for people to be separated from this. 
So let's not have too summarily a judgment against those who desire this. Um, but I also want to question if there's a basis for it. And if there's not a basis for it, how might we re-examine what we truly believe or what the Bible does say? Is it simply what we want to believe or is it simply making a difference in what the Bible could say? And, or is it just not possible? Does the, the Bible just not allow it? Um, and so uh, I want to address the four natures, the nature of human knowledge, the nature of God, the nature of redemption, and the nature of judgment, again, but from a traditional Christian view. Uh, and it's tricky because I feel at this point that somehow I have to position myself to persuade you of the quote-unquote ugly parts of God. Because Christian universalism is so lovely, so beautiful, that it's like, well, actually, God has skeletons in the closet, and we just have to deal with it. But that's not what I believe. But I, I want for us to examine what does Scripture actually say to us, and then how are we to think about it and deal with it? Okay, so the nature of human knowledge from a traditional Christian perspective. So the Christian universalist says that human knowledge is limited. Therefore, people cannot be held to be responsible for partial or corrupted knowledge, an incomplete gospel, an unheard gospel, a false gospel. On the day that Jesus is revealed in his full glory, people will proclaim Jesus' lordship in a salvific way and bend their knees. If they had the full clarity of truth, they would choose God's salvation through Jesus. They would discover love and grace that God has extended to them through creation and through redemption. But the nature of knowledge biblically says that limited knowledge or limited revelation is sufficient for God to make his eternal judgment. I mean, we can take an everyday example. There's an everyday example. We are constantly bearing weight and responsibility for making a decision on incomplete knowledge. Consider going to the doctor. The doctor says, you need to start taking these pills. And if you don't, it's going to be very bad for you. You don't know how the enzymes work and how the body works. And maybe you Google and you're not really sure. But if you don't listen, it might be deathly if you don't listen because you feel like you know better. So there is, in a sense, we make decisions that are very important on partial knowledge all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that knowledge can be limited is not a shortcoming, biblically speaking. Mm -hmm. Instead, the nature of knowledge in the Bible is based on the trust that you have of the person telling you. So do you trust the doctor? If you don't trust the doctor, then you may not. It doesn't matter how much they say. They could lay out reams of paper from CBC and you're like, Meh. but if you trust them and say, okay, I trust you. I trust you. I'm going to follow you because I just know the kind of person you are. 
So God doesn't give us everything we need to know, but we need to know that we can trust him. And God is saying, I'm trustworthy. I'm not giving you everything. I'm not letting you know everything, but you need to trust me. But what about knowledge when it's cosmically, eternally important? When we look at scripture, full revelation is never, ever the goal. God never, ever fully discloses himself. I mean, if he did, as soon as Adam at first, Adam and Eve, he doesn't give them a lot of information. He tells them the truth, but they don't really understand. But when they sinned and he promises salvation, why does he speak so cryptically? The woman will step on the head of the baby that which will crush the head of the serpent come on god could you just say that you're going to save us somehow through some person later on why does god wait so long full revelation doesn't ever seem to be god's purpose or goal he just wants you to trust his word just as he wanted you to trust it in the garden of eden he wanted you to trust it outside of eden We look at Jesus himself. We're surprised that God who comes to himself, he comes himself incarnate. He doesn't write a word. He doesn't write a book. He's, and uh, when he often talks to people, he asks questions rather than gives dialogues or diatribes. God doesn't seem to be too concerned about explaining everything. In fact, when people try to figure out that he's the Messiah or the demons proclaim him the son of God, he tells them the sush. Be quiet. He tells them to be quiet. The messianic secret. Why does Jesus hold back? You could say that he's going to go to the cross if they find out earlier, but okay, you waited 30 years already. Like, why keep it a secret? Doesn't seem like the goal is full revelation all the time. It's do you trust me? Do you trust my word? And then when Jesus actually does teach and does speak, he often speaks in riddles and parables. He tells parables so that those who don't who don't hear won't hear, who don't see won't see. But who will see, will see. It's like, well, can't you just make it kind of plain? I mean, Jesus comes at a particular time in a particular place in Israel in the first century. Why doesn't God speak from the sky? I mean, I've had so many students who've come through Labrie ask me, why doesn't just God declare his truth to each individual from the clouds and says, this is my plan. This is what I want. This is what you need to do. But he doesn't. Seems like God's purposes is not trying to fully reveal himself. He's asking you, do you trust what I've given you? Even though um, it's limited. It's limited, but it's sufficient. And then you have um, Paul. In Romans 1, he says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all are without excuse. 
all are without excuse because what is unseen is clearly seen. Strange. In, a sta in this statement, Paul is saying that all are responsible because God's characteristics are evident in what he's made and in what he's done. <clears throat> so Paul continues in verse 21 of chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 1 of Romans. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, we might ask, how did they know God? How well did they know God? Yet Paul declares that they were responsible. <clears throat> Not only were they unclear, but their actions further darkened their minds and their hearts. Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So Paul is saying, God gave you sufficient knowledge. It's limited, but it's sufficient. And you are bearing the burden of guilt if you do not acknowledge the one who's given you this knowledge. I mean, in fact, if you looked at Adam and Eve, they had all the knowledge. They're not us trapped in sin and incomplete knowledge. They were finite, but they experienced the intimacy of God being present with them, communicating to them, declaring his will, giving them commands. And yet Adam and Eve know who God is. They can trust who God is. And yet they disobey. So that's a question for the Christian universalists. It's like, well, you might say if we have the full awareness of Jesus, why does it mean that they have to say yes? Can they not have the freedom to say no? And that's where C.S. Lewis is not a universalist. He was more of an inclusivist because he believed that the decisions throughout life would form us to the point of even in death, if we were face to face with Jesus in his full glory, we might be horrified at the sight because of the choices that we had made that prepared us for that moment. It prepared us for the moment to not see Jesus' beauty, but to see Jesus' beauty as terrifying. That virtue or, our, or vice has shaped us to the, for that decision. Because this, this, this idea that if we see Jesus in his full glory, as if character makes no difference to our choice. But Lewis is like, no, character makes all the difference in how you might make that choice. Which is a different discussion. So we see that true uh, sufficient knowledge is not sufficient in receiving Jesus as the one um, um, we desire, the one who we are to desire. Um, in fact, Paul says that neither human knowledge, nor human effort, nor human desire are enough to produce God's um, grace. God's grace is dependent on only one thing, God's free will. Otherwise, it's not grace. It comes out of freely out of his own loving character. It does not depend on a piety or motivation. It depends on a free act. So grace, by definition, is something that cannot be obligated. So... 
But that leads us to the question of the nature of God. <laughs> the traditional view is to say that there's nothing we can do to merit God's favor. And so on the plus side, that identifies that grace is an extraordinary gift. No matter how hard you work, no matter how guilty you stand, God's grace is freely extended to you. All you have to do is raise your empty hands and say, I believe you. I trust you. But this great truth also seems to have a dark side. The dark side is, if nothing depends on me, how do I know if God will show his grace to me? If I can't do anything, then what can I do? It looks arbitrary. Now, Reformed theology would be like, well, if God loves just one person, it's sufficient. God doesn't have to forgive anyone. He's holy. He's perfect. And all have sinned. None are righteous. And so if he doesn't save a single person, he is still great and glorious and loving. <laughs> Might be hard for us to hear that. Might be hard for us to believe that. But can we say that that's true? I just want us to think about that. Many people have found that so disgusting and so distasteful that they decided to cut and paste what they want in the Bible and what they don't want in the Bible. Marcion is the first early church figure, not a church father, but an early church figure, first one of the first heretics. That said, Old Testament, bad. He was a Greek, didn't like the Jews. Old Testament, bad, full of wrath. But when he looked to the New Testament, uh, we got to doctor this up. I got to remove a lot of, I got to get rid of the Jewishness. I got to get rid of the judgment. And so basically he had a bit of Luke. He had a bit of Paul. And that's about it. The Marcion Bible. Thomas Jefferson did the same. He wanted to remove all the negative aspects of God and keep the positive aspects of God. <clears throat> now, George Bernard Shaw, I think, saw it more clearly. He said, look, the Old Testament is muddied with blood. But all it had was physical death. The New Testament's way worse. It's spiritual death, eternal torment. Get rid of all of it. Um, well, the Christian universalists would say, well, God is love. God is love. But, and Rob Bell would, you know, in his interviews, would hammer this over and over again as a pastoral response, God is love. But how do we get the concept that God is love? God is love is strictly a biblical concept the same place where we find that God is wrathful. The same place that God will judge everyone. The same place where Jesus speaks about hell and separation and removal. So what are we to do? Um, 
So we must recognize that this concept that God is love, it doesn't mean that we throw out the concept of God is love, but we have to understand what does it mean to say God is love without removing it from its context. And so Tim Keller is really great on this, and it's an extended quote, but it's very easy to understand, so I don't mind reading it. This is uh, out of his book called Reason for God. He wrote this in two, early 2000, the aughts, as we like to say. Um, but this is what Tim Keller has to say there. I found no other religious text outside the Bible that said God created the world out of love and delight. Most ancient pagan religions believed the world was created through struggles and violent battles between opposing gods and supernatural forces. I turned to look more closely at Buddhism, the religion I liked best at the time. However, despite its great emphasis on selflessness and detached service to others, Buddhism did not believe in a personal God at all, and love is the action of a person. He continues. Today, many skeptics believe, um, I talk to say, as I once did, they can't believe in the God of the Bible who punishes and judges people because they believe in a God of love. I, I now ask, what makes them think God is love? Can they look at the life in the world today and say this proves that the God of the world is a God of love? Can they look at history and say that this all shows that the God of history is a God of love? Can they look at the religious texts of the world and conclude that God is a God of love? By no means is that the dominant ruling attribute of God as understood in any of the major faiths. I must conclude that the source of the idea that God is love is the Bible itself. And the Bible tells us that the God of love is also the God of judgment, who will also put all things in the world to rights in the end. We have this tension. The very concept of where we have God as God of love is um, the Bible. But that is the same place where you have God is judge. <clears throat> so is God of love a contradiction? To the God as judge? Is it mutually exclusive? The Bible does not think so. In the Old Testament, we have instances where God of love and God of judgment side by side with no qualms from the biblical writers. In Psalm 145, verses 17 through 20, it reads, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears the cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So there's destruction and there's love. And in fact, the part of his love is that he will destroy the wicked. How can he be loving if he doesn't destroy what's wicked? <clears throat> John, we see this in the New Testament. 
And uh, by the way, that the George Bernard Shaw, who, who was saying, you know, the New Testament is just as bad as the old. In fact, it's worse because Jesus speaks about hell. In the Old Testament, it was physical death. In the New Testament, it's eternal death. The word wrath does not show up very much in the Old Testament. It shows up 190 times in the New. Think about that. So John, in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 16, uh, in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, God is love. And a lot of people will say God is love, and that's where they get the text. But John himself writes in the first chapter, God is light. What does God is light mean? I mean, we often think of a New Age kind of chapel. We think of a warm ambiance the sun of the Panama beach with our Corona in our hand, God cascading us with his love, like the warmth of a sunshine on a perfect summer day. But that is not at all what the Bible means when it says God is light. When it says God is light, it means that the sun will expose and burn off. Okay. The middle East is very hot. It's not the Corona time. And whenever John talks about God is light, he's talking about God as judge. Light is a reference to judgment throughout the Bible. Um, because light exposes the darkness. And so even John, where we get this notion that God is love, is at the same time the same person who says God is light. God is judge. Uh Paul in Romans, uh, let's see, Romans 11, verse 22. Let me see, let me find it. In verse 22 of chapter 11 in Romans, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Think about that. Paul doesn't think God is going to get you, but he's saying he's loving, but don't dismiss his love because it will cut you off. There's sternness in cutting yourself off from the love of God. And so in the same breath, and then Jesus himself, the very one who embodies the love of God, spoke about hell more than anyone else in throughout the whole Bible. The doctrine of hell is almost completely built upon what Jesus has said. <clears throat> so let's look at the, I've looked at the nature of judgment. I mean, I'm sorry, the nature of uh, knowledge, the nature of God, and now the nature of redemption through the traditional view. And this is very short before we get to the nature of judgment. And it's not much longer after that. So thanks for bearing with me. So a lot of people say that the Old Testament is about wrath. The New Testament is about rescuing us from that wrath. But that's not the biblical story. Jesus is never seen as pitted against the Father as if it's some kind of divine child abuse. Jesus says he lays down his life and he's the one that takes it up. 
we cannot see God's love as opposed to his wrath or to his judgment. We see it at one. And we see it preeminently at one on the cross. Divine judgment, divine love at the same moment on the cross. Because Jesus laid down his own life, but he laid down his own life to bear the wrath of God that we deserve. And so the atonement of Christ on the cross would be anemic if we remove the idea of propitiation, that God poured out his wrath on his son, on Jesus, who voluntarily bore that wrath that we deserved. That God would be just to judge us according to our sins. That God reveals the severity of this justice on the cross. Um, And if we believe that God is just to reveal this wrath against us, I believe that we would have much less problems in believing that God is capable of doing so in final judgment. Because God, according to the scripture, judges the son so that those who trust in him might receive the salvation that Jesus had procured for those who trusted in him. But the question is, how extensive is this salvific act? Now, there's traditional views between what's called particular atonement and general atonement. Particular atonement is this idea that Jesus' salvation is just for those that got elected. General atonement is that it's available to all who call on him, um, but not that it doesn't mean that all are saved. We're not going to get into the muck of that, okay? But um, as important and longstanding that debate is, um, <clears throat> what happens there is that through the cross, we see that creation will be redeemed. All things will be redeemed through the cross and resurrection. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that human creatures as a part of that creation will be uh, um, taken up into that full redemption unless if they receive the grace that God has extended to them through Jesus. It's never coerced. God's grace is never coercive. Uh, In Luke Chapter 13, verse 22, when the disciples ask if only a few will be saved, they ask Jesus, will only be a a few be saved? He said, wide is the road, but narrow is the gate. He says, many will try to enter, but will not be able. It's interesting. Why would Jesus say that? Many will try to enter, but will not be able. This isn't a parable that he's saying. He's explaining a parable, yes, but he's explaining a parable. So he's giving doctrinal presuppositional knowledge for us to understand what it means to stand in relationship to God through Jesus. If you don't accept Jesus, then there is no way in. Uh, The Christian universalist would say the gate is always open. If you look at Revelation 21, it says the new Jerusalem comes down and the gates will never be closed. Well, you can say, and Jesus says, I'm the gate. Paul Young in the shack would say, well, that's because Jesus says, come on in, keep coming, keep coming. You over there, 
It's been 10 years. It's been 10,000 years. Come on, come on. But, uh, but that's not what Revelation uh, is talking about. What it means is that all wickedness will be destroyed. And therefore, no harm can come into the New Jerusalem. You lock your doors because you're afraid. But if you're not afraid, you leave the doors unlocked. You might even forget to close your door because there's no fear. That's the New Jerusalem. There's no fear because God has dealt with wickedness. That's why the gate is open, but it's not salvific. It's about God's securing the place for his beloved. <clears throat> so that's the narrow door. Well, that leads us to the question, well, what is this judgment? Redemption is only through the Son, is only through Jesus. He's the gate. It's only those who call on him biblically to say that the inner will. What is it? What is judgment? Um, <clears throat> the New Testament speaks of the cosmic redemption of Jesus's work. But the only thing really universal is judgment. Judgment is universal. Um, <clears throat> Paul says every knee shall bow. Now, when people point this out, and I, in my title, every knee shall bow, question mark, a look at Christian universalism, because a lot of people believe that bowing the knee is salvific. But this is a reference to Isaiah 45, and Paul makes reference to this not only in the letter to the Philippians, but also to the letter to the Romans. In Romans 12, I mean, Romans 14. In Romans 14, he says that every knee will bow before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, be cautious of judging others. So what he's doing is using it as an application to not be so quick to judge other people. And I'll talk about this in a minute. But the point is, is that bending the knee is not salvific, but submissive. It is submitting that Jesus is Lord. God is King. God is who he said he was. In fact, the specific, there are specific judgments made of Satan, demons, the dead, Hades, and death in Revelation 20. And the question I would have for one who holds a Christian universalism is, what about Satan? Does he get off the hook? Do the demons? Look at all the disaster they've caused throughout history. Do they get off the hook? And Origen would say, logically, it has to be so. Because where do you draw the line? That when God stops being merciful, and you can still say he's good. So if he doesn't show mercy to Satan, is he still good? If he doesn't show mercy to the demons, is he still good? If he doesn't show mercy to Adolf Hitler, is he still good? If he doesn't show mercy to the serial murderer, to the person who distrusts God and hates God, where is the line drawn? At what point? <clears throat> and this judgment is spoken of as something that is everlasting, an alienation from which they cannot return. Peter says um, of the false teachers, just of false teachers within the church, these men are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. There's a heavy judgment on false teaching within the church. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, 
Jesus speaks of people being cast out. Do you remember the, the parable of the wedding banquet? Someone gets in and the master comes and says, how did you get the wedding clothes on? Take them off and throw them out. This was in context of eternal judgment. How are we to think about that? And in fact, at this point, I want to say, let's say that, let's say that Jesus is truly loving, okay? Which I believe he is. But let's say that Jesus is truly loving. Now, what's more truly loving? That Jesus tells you about hell because it's an existential threat to make sure that you're good or that it's a real threat that he doesn't want you to experience. Which is the more loving, the more truthful position? Because one's manipulation and one is honest desire. I would say that God or Jesus declaring the truth about hell and sincere and adamant about this has to be the more loving position than giving an empty threat. But we can talk about that. And Second Peter also says in chapter 3 that, um, that only those who are in Christ will survive the sacrificial fire of God where it burns off the dross and, and keeps what's pure. Which will mean for those who are in Jesus, all that is dross within us, if we trust in Jesus, will be burnt off. But any part of us not trusting in Jesus, all will be burnt off. Now, I've never taught, I haven't talked about the furniture of hell, the nature of hell and all this. I'm just talking about the nature of judgment. And is God fair to judge? That's all I've been talking about. So make sure that those pictures are not something I've said. But it raises an important question. How can a loving God deny salvation to anyone? Is that fair? Is it just? How can we believe this? Um, before I get into the, my final section, the implications, uh, which is my final slide, is that some people say, well, it was more plausible when Paul and Jesus and John and Peter in the ancient world said these things. Death came early, disease was frequent, plagues were not uncommon. Uh, death was something all around. You know, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. It's something that is hidden from us. The dust of death is is something that we don't see in our world. It's hidden, it's medicalized, it's sanitized. So we don't see death so often um, as much as the ancient world. And so maybe we think they were more prepared for this idea of judgment and darkness. But when Paul and Peter and Jesus and them spoke of these things, it was just as offensive in their day as it is in our day, because it was a religious pluralistic society just as ours is. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, um, Peter writes to the churches about people who are mocking them. And the people who mock says, where is this coming of judgment he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So there's mockery. 
So the doctrine of judgment, the doctrine of eternal separation, of divine judgment has always been unpalatable, difficult, undigestible, horrific. And so um, we should never think that, that if Paul and Peter and John were to live in our day, that the message would change. It would not. Okay, so by way of conclusion, I just want to draw out a few implications of what it means to believe in a God who is both loving, but also just. Francis Schaeffer had this saying, God is love, um, no, God is holy, God is love, God is love, God is holy. He loves saying that. God is holy, God is love, God is love, God is holy. We always have to hold these together. Okay. Um, he wanted to make sure that there was no priority, but they both were totally true. So is divine judgment an issue that we can set aside, even if it's taught in the scripture? Is it something that we can avoid or deem as unhelpful? Does it, in fact, cause us to be exclusionary and violent and priggish? That's for the British person, priggish. But there are three things. So divine judgment gives human action meaning. Divine judgment honors the freedom of each person. Divine judgment removes the need for vengeance. Okay, let me go through these three, and this is where I conclude. So one, the first is divine judgment gives human action meaning. So if you don't have divine judgment, there's no difference between a good and wrong action. Ultimately. Existentially, there might be, but not ultimately. I mean, this is the problem that the author of Ecclesiastes had, is that all things seem meaningless. Whether you were foolish or wise, it all ended in the same. So he longed for there to be divine judgment to say there such thing wisdom matters, that foolishness matters, even in the wrong sense or in the best sense. And this is precisely what the Christian universalist has trouble with. If all actions will be nullified and all humans be redeemed, including those who commit the most heinous crimes, including Satan himself, then what reason is there for goodness or for thankfulness? Now, um, this doesn't mean that we should be motivated by fear. That's not what I'm arguing. Because you can say, I'm motivated by the fear of hell, the fear of judgment, and so in the fear of shame. So often in our life, we're motivated by those things because of our parents, because of our culture, because of our religious upbringing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that God is saying that there's justice in the scales and that choosing one action over another matters because God sees it and God weighs it. Not because God is going to bash you over the head if you don't. And so you think, I'm generous, and this is good. It's a joy. It's not motivated by fear. It's a, it can be motivated by delight and joy of what is good. Alongside this, there's no motivation for evangelism. 
for Christ. Rob Bell was being questioned on MSNBC by Martin Bashir, and he was point blank asked Rob Bell, if someone does not choose Jesus in this life, does it matter if all will go to heaven? And Rob Bell says, I think it's extremely important. I think it's tremendously important. But then he didn't give a reason why. Now, it's not that I'm unsympathetic to Rob Bell because he says, I approach this from a pastoral thing because there's been people who have been abused by the church, which is what I mentioned early on. But, but Martin Bashir was right to question him, even if you may not like his style, but he was right to question him and saying, but you haven't answered the question. Does it matter to declare Jesus in this life if ultimately it doesn't matter. Jesus has already accomplished it, whether you believe it or not. If Jesus was so keen on people believing him, why? Just so that they might have 30 years better off? Because he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. It's not necessarily that everything's going to go well with you if you trust in Jesus in this life. It means that there's an eternal security and an eternal joy set before us. And so without divine judgment, without divine judgment, it loses the it loses meaning for human action, it loses meaning for evangelism for Jesus. Secondly, divine judgment honors the freedom of each person. So in the end, Christian universalism declares that all will be compelled to respond positively to God when Jesus is fully revealed. But it does not recognize that humans may want to choose against God nonetheless. Such a view is not based on scripture. We've seen that with Adam and Eve. They knew who God was. They knew his goodness, and they didn't want it. Can people see God's goodness and not want it? Can you believe that? I've seen it. There was one student that came. Uh, he, he came to Labrie. He had never thought of the word God until he was on the hospital bed. I won't go into his story. But somehow he showed up in our branch and didn't know, knew nothing of Christianity. When I asked him about the Bible, he said, I think that's the, the book that Christians read. He knew nothing. And after a month with us, um, he did some things that made his state questionable. And so I had to call him in and talk to him. I had to have a heart to heart about if he should be there. And I said, look, um, if you keep on doing this, we have to like ask you to leave. But I want, in fact, I should ask you to leave now because of what you've done. Don't, you can ask me privately what he did. But I said, but I know that you're not aware of how we live our life. I know that you're not aware of God. But I want to say you have a choice. You can stay here if you fully commit yourself. If you don't want to commit yourself, no love lost, just leave. It's your choice. You have until tomorrow to answer my question. He came back the next day. He sat down on my couch in our apartment. And he said, Clark, I believe everything you say. 
I love and admire all um, the life that all of you live here. But in the end, I don't want it. I want what I've always had. I want alcohol. I want money. I want sex. And I was like, okay, well, that led you into the ditch. And that's what led you here. So go ahead and go back to those things. But when you get into a ditch, know that we would love to have you back. And so he said, thank you. And he left. Can we believe that people can understand what is good and rejected? Ultimately. I mean, we do it all the time. We know that something is good, but we don't choose it. But can we believe that hearts would be like that ultimately before eternal choices? I believe so. Yes. And I think that's what C.S. Lewis portrayed in The Great Divorce. And if you read that, it's amazing. He gives amazing portraits of people before divine eternal choices and makes a decision against it for reasons of decency, reasons of pride, of reasons of fear. And so C.S. Lewis put it, either a person will say to God, thy will be done, or God will say to the person, thy will be done. So in the Bible, divine judgment never denies human choice, even if it's not human created. Um, I should also say that, um, just as a side note, the Bible never allows the possibility for post-mortem evangelism. Something I would prefer, I would hope for. But it says that judgment will come like a thief in the night, a flash of lightning. So we have to think about that. Okay, third and finally... Divine judgment removes the need for vengeance. So some Christian universalist advocates suggest that believing in divine judgment causes people to be judgmental. If you can start judging who is and who is out, who's in and who's out, then that leads you to be legalistic, moralistic, and judgmental. But Tim Keller and I believe that the Bible actually argues the opposite. When Paul mentions that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God in Romans 14, he says directly after, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. It's not our place to make ultimate judgments. We can make provisional ones. That's wisdom. But we can't make ultimate ones. That's strictly God's prerogative. Um. <clears throat> And also in 1 Peter 4, it says that the church will be first to be judged. The church will be first to be judged. Um, this is a reflection of Zechariah and I think Malachi where, or Ezekiel, Ezekiel, where the idea that God tells God, um, his messenger to go out and to lay out his judgment on the city and on, and on those who pray for the city. And he says to the judgment must begin with the elders in the temple. And so God's judgment in the Old Testament and throughout always begins on his own people and his own church first. 
and it goes out from there before it judges others. And those who pray for the city are spared. But those who have been in the church, abided in the church, but have trusted their own merits and their own judgments are the first to be judged harshly by God. So divine judgment um, does not um, removes the need for vengeance. And lastly, uh, and this is very, very, very important, is we need to see how unexpected God's judgments are. In Luke 13, where Jesus told his disciples to make every effort to enter through the narrow door, and he says that some will try but not be able to. But he finishes the teaching by this. Interestingly, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. So it says that the door is narrow, but the judgment will be surprising. It won't be according to our own judgments, be according to his. Here and elsewhere, Jesus turns our assumptions upside down. Those who reject an invitation to the banquet will be replaced by the poor, the blind, the weak, and the lame. Those who see the invitation as grace. There is no place or of privilege or of assumption, but only a place where we recognize it as supremely as God's grace. God does not judge as quickly as we do. If God judged the world by sending his son who laid down his life, his own life for us, we can trust, we can trust whatever judgment comes for us and to us as truly just. This should be particularly so if we understand that Jesus himself is our judge, as we see in Matthew 25. So how then are we to understand this God? How can we worship a God who judges people to everlasting death? So just a few final parting words. Um, I just want to say a desire to see all people saved is a godly desire. It's not an ungodly one. However, the conclusion is that that all, in fact, will be saved is unbiblical, not biblically defensible. So to draw conclusions that God is a God of love. We must recognize that this idea comes from us from the same text that pronounce that God's judgment will also attend that love. That when God shows his love, he will judge. And when he judges us, we will see it as a demonstration of his love. In other words, if one is to remain biblical, one cannot also be a universalist. Even if you put Jesus into that framework. Though many biblical ideas seem to resonate, Jesus does not fit the mold. So I think Christian universalism is a lofty ideal, but in the end, a human ideal, not a biblical end. It does not mean that those who believe in judgment have a right to enact on earth. Uh, we, we don't have a right to enact it on earth, that divine judgment like the Crusades. We must know that we are all equal in this regard under his judgment, and that we don't hold the measure by which God judges. Only God can. For that reason, we must only receive what has been revealed and try to live faithfully by it.
Okay. Um, let's discuss. Is it 8.37 yet? <laughs> Julie is always judging me. I'm <laughs> waiting. Right. I'm just waiting for the final. No, I, I love other clerks like you all going to heaven for this lecture. <laughs> Righteous judgment. It's like Kanye West. I don't know if you know Kanye West. He said, um, uh, I know I'm going to heaven because I wrote Jesus Walks. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. It's an amazing song. You should hear Kanye West, Jesus Walks. Amazing song. Uh, and it's a Christian song. But just because you wrote a great Christian song does not mean salvation. Just to clear that one up. I know that was the first <laughs> question. question. I know that was the first question from Liz, but yeah, Conway, it depends. Yeah. I do have a real question. Okay. Um, so... You're talking about the like um, partial knowledge. I can't remember the exact word you used. Like partial or limited or corrupt. Is sufficient. Um, oh, I'm wondering about yeah. the scripture. Maybe you can. Um, uh, I won't get it correctly, and I won't. I don't actually remember where it is. Um, it's saying how can they believe if they haven't heard, and how can they hear if no one's told them? Yeah. So I'm wondering. That seems like to to contradict that. Okay, so Liz is asking about me saying that limited knowledge or limited revelation is sufficient. Yet Paul says, I believe in Romans, that um, how, um, how can they believe if they have not heard? Right? Right. How can that be consistent? And if they haven't heard, if no one's told them. And how can they hear if no one's told them? Yeah. Because um, I think also to add to that, if you say there's, there's impetus for evangelism yeah. through belief in, in hell and judgment then if we believe that everyone just has sufficient knowledge as is that also sort of seems to counter the need for evangelism yeah that if we all have sufficient knowledge of god's eternal power then what need is there for evangelism right. yeah i mean it that's it's a really great question um as always uh, it really falls into the question of God's divine sovereignty and uh, and the means of his grace. So what I mean by that is um, how are people saved? I mean, if God has already chosen people, they're already responsible, then why even evangelize? But the, the point is, is that we don't know what the... Um, the, we don't know the means by which they will know. And so Paul is referring, what Paul is not saying there is, well, everyone's going to be saved. Mm -hmm. But he's saying that this, this message is so important, we need to get it out. Therefore, if they don't hear, how can they believe? If you don't preach, like, why are you just happy with and satisfied with what you've heard? We need to get out and proclaim it. And so in one sense, what they have is sufficient for their judgment. Um, but they may not have the full declaration. And so when Paul in Athens says, you have a statue to the unknown God, 
Now let me tell you who this unknown God is. This God has spoken. He has spoken through his prophets, and now he has finally spoken through Jesus. Um, this God has created. And so he's actually importing a lot into this. And so in a sense, he's saying, this points to your belief. This po points to your knowledge that this God exists. Now let me tell you who this God is. So in a sense, they have sufficient knowledge to be judged by it, but they don't know perhaps enough to know that they need to call on that unknown God for salvation. Um, but, but it is tricky. It's, it's um, to say, well, uh, what about those who have never heard? Right. And I'm not trying to answer that question. I was just trying to, when I mentioned that earlier, I was just trying to mention the, the weight of that. Yeah. feeling what do we think about how is god good in his judgment I, I didn't say how he would judge them but i would say the christian universal would say because of that he must save them right. but paul never says that um, he's saying they have sufficient knowledge and this is why they've turned against them they've exchanged these things but we need to get out there and tell them the whole truth so that they might trust in jesus and be saved like some like some missionary stories that we've heard as well, where the culture had like some some kind of Christ figure or something, but it was a partial right revelation. Um, there was still these missionaries still felt an impetus to go and tell them like this is who that person really is, and this is the full story. Right. Yeah, the culture might have a Christ figure, but when the missionary comes and tells their story, then the people are like, "This is the message that we've been waiting for." Um. And in the inclusivist, and I don't know if I'm an inclusivist, but, but I'm sympathetic to the view, let's say, that uh, those who were looking for God's mercy, but not knowing how, and then receive that message, and they hear Jesus, and they say, like when C.S. Lewis says, Plato may look to Jesus and say, that's who I was talking about. I would say that they had a foretaste of the gospel without knowing it. And that, in fact, could be saving grace. Not because they could articulate it, um, but because they had that resonance of this is what I desire. But I don't think all desire that. Yes, I'm... Oh, sorry. No, no. no. Oh. oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. I appreciate the distinctions, the three distinctions of universalism. I did not know that. Uh, um, which distinctions? The Christian yeah. uh, inclusivism, universalism, and Christian universalism. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I didn't know that. And um, I should say that a lot of Christian universalists will refer to them as evangelical universalists mm -hmm. because they want to make sure that you understand that it's Jesus, not just some kind of liberal right. Christian Unitarian. I have two questions. Um, one, do we have any churches that are exclusively Christian universalists in Victoria that you know of? No, I know Christians in Victoria who are Christian universalists, but I don't know a church that's strictly that. Okay. I know that the Unitarian Church down the way and that the Unitarian Church historically has a connection to Christian universalism. Okay, but they would be universalists. It's not, they are universalists, right. yeah, but their roots are not. Okay. Yeah. I think there's some churches in Toronto or Calgary or something that are, are teaching that. In Toronto, I think. Rob Bell is exclusively. Where is he from? 
Minneapolis or Minnesota or something oh, okay. like that. I don't know where he is now. Okay, so that was my first question. The second question is, I'm reminded, well, I should say George McDonald, I really appreciate him, and he considers Lewis his master, right? Other way. No, no Lewis, considers, Lewis considers McDonald his master. Right. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. But he said McDonald baptized his imagination. Okay, okay. Yeah, McDonald was 1890s. Lewis was late 1940s. 1940s. Okay. Yeah, Chesterton. Yeah, Chesterton and McDonald are closer. Okay. Um, so I'm reminded of The Last Battle in C.S. Lewis. Yeah. So that's kind of where his. Um, right. What do you call it again? Maybe satiriology. Is that what you're talking about? The, the view of the. the the view of um, of, of salvation, yeah. Yeah. I remember when I read it years ago to the kids, I'm like, yeah. yeah. Tash and Aslan. Yeah. Like some were getting in that I didn't expect to get in. And, and I thought, well, you know, God looks at the heart. Man looks at the word appearance. God looks at the heart. Mm. But... Um, I still think that today we don't know, like we like to have the prayer that people say in the church after raising a hand with all eyes closed. Like we go that far to have this pattern. Yeah, right. But God True. is so beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that there is room for, for somewhere in there, like what C.S. Lewis is saying, that there's room for people to have they don't know the name of the uh, of God, but they their hearts are more inclined toward the God of nature, whatever that they're they're being drawn to that they just have never heard, and that's that's God's business. Yeah, like like Amos the Calderman in the last battle. I can't remember the details, but yeah. is it the donkey? No, no, it was Amos. He fought. He fought for Tash. Okay. Uh, you know, right. he, yeah. he's on Tash. You worship Tash, and uh, and ultimately, Aslan says to Emmet, he said, "All the good that you did in the name of Tash, I take unto myself." It's right. a lot better language. I'm able to, okay. but anything anything vile is the word he uses that's done in my name is taken by Tash. That's right. But I, I've I'd asked that question in the last battle. Were the dwarfs in? Okay, well, let's hold off on that. Okay. Let's just keep carrying on with Tash and Aslan, okay? okay. No, no. We'll get to the dwarfs. Okay. Uh, did you want to follow that up with Donna? No, I'll wait until this place. Yeah, because, uh, you know, and it really reflects that kind of inclusivistic strand in Lewis, where in the last battle, he's saying that whatever's done good for Tash is actually done for me. Whatever's done vile in my name is done for Tash. Because... He's not just saying that what Lewis is saying, it's not just about your party, your allegiance, like, but if, if your character is aimed toward me in mercy and kindness and generosity and forgiveness, well, that means that you are falsely worshiping Tash because Tash does not represent that. That actually represents who I am. And if you represent this false God in my character, then actually you're actually representing, you're worshiping me. But if you're worshiping Jesus, 
because he gives you material wealth and success um, and uh, whatever else, but it doesn't produce good character in you, then you've actually been worshiping an idol. And so Lewis is saying, whatever's done in my character is done for me. Whatever's done in idolatry is, no, even if it has my name as idolatry. No, I mean, that can be called into question uh, because, you know, because it's not as if we worship God in purity, you know, like uh, Brenda Manning, you know, it's like we're just kind of rotten scoundrels worshiping God resting in his mercy, not in our character. But there is something to be said about what Lewis is saying that our character should reflect the one that we trust in. If you trust in an idol, then you will be like an idol. If you trust in God, then you will be like God. And so if, and so there is something to what Lewis is saying that perhaps that you think you're worshiping Dash, but actually you're, you're looking to me and not knowing it. Um, so who knows about the Muslim who is looking to be forgiving and kind and generous of spirit and all these kind of things that um, are perhaps inconsistent with the Quran, consistent with Jesus, even though they don't know it. And then they see Jesus in a dream and they're like, that's who I've been looking to. I just didn't know it. So what about those who don't get the dream? Who About those who don't get the dream, but um, yeah, and I don't know. But maybe they arise in death and go, it's you, to Jesus. Cliff, you want to add something? Uh, yeah, hi, Clark. Um, it's so good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, do you, I, I was wondering, do you know anything about uh, Eastern Orthodoxy? Because I was thinking when uh, you had the slide about traditional Christianity, that that's a form of traditional Christianity. And I, I've heard that they have a universalist view of salvation. Do you know much about that? Uh, honestly, I don't know too much. Uh, you're right to call me into question to say the traditional view. I should say the traditional Western view. But um, since Augustine. But yes, I do know that there are some universalistic tendencies uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy because of how they view salvation. Uh, it's not so much penal substitution as much as being, as I understand it, maturing, maturing into the nature of God. Um, but but I, I can't say more than that. Okay. Do you have anything? I, I don't. I just kind of recently heard a little bit about that and I was no, it's a good correction. Okay, and look into it some more. Research on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Greg. Can we get back? To Let's the get back to the drawers. Back to the drawers. It, well, I get. I guess my thinking in the last you, battle. You, you, yeah, in the last battle. Uh, is that you know? Is that we seem to view either your inner or actually we're talking about the renewal of all things, the renewal of things, getting away from the heaven and hell sort of idea. Anyway, it's the renewal of all things. You know, like you said in the quote from Corinthians or in Ephesians one. Yeah, verse 10 there it's a renewal of all things yes and so that is sort of a universalistic statement but i think what we make i think in my view anyway what we do is we make a mistake of saying you're either in or you're out you know and in the case like the dwarfs in the last battle they're in 
but on the other hand, their life is, is not the same. The, and you know, and Jesus says things like, great will be your reward in heaven. You know, so it seems to me that biblically even, you can make an argument in fact that for, for universalism, but but there's still judgment. Our, 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 lives, our lives here, based on our hearts, is that has an impact on our life in the, in the world to come and the renewal of all things. Uh, so, I mean, if we're, we're the dwarfs in hell. Yeah, so it's a, it, yeah, so the dwarfs in the last battle are those who find themselves in Narnia. The, the, the children see that they're in Narnia, but they see that uh, the dwarfs are there, but the dwarfs don't realize that they're in Narnia. They're, they don't realize that they're in the new kingdom. And, uh, and all they are is just complaining. And because they're so complaining and so focused from their perspective, everything is doldrums and dreary, and they don't realize that all around them is bliss. And so in a sense, they're not with Tash, but, and so they're in heaven, but without the experience of the blessing, just to give an overview of what's happening there. But I think it's a wonderful uh, imaginative exercise that Lewis has there. I would say that Lewis would say that he's not speaking of the ontological nature of heaven, that people will be there and not be aware of it. Um, but it is a exercise for us to realize that maybe we are in the midst of God's people, in the midst of God's righteousness and his promises and not recognizing the blessings that we have around us and within us. Uh, and so, I mean, Lewis, and I say that because Lewis says that about the great divorce, saying I'm not writing uh, a, a narrative that of, of, of beliefs I have about the afterlife, but just a, a, an exercise in which to think about the afterlife. It's modern mythology. In a sense, yeah. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, um, it's an imaginative exercise. And so I think that what he's trying to do there is to say there are people who are in the midst of that blessing, just as with, uh, I don't even know if he's making a statement about, oh, people who loved Jesus, but didn't know it, like Plato, and those who thought they loved Jesus, but, you know, loved themselves, Um even though he does do that a little bit in the great divorce where there's kind of like these very liberal theologians, they talk about Jesus as this beautiful meta, the resurrection is a beautiful metaphor. And um, the person in heaven is like, actually, no, it's real. <laughs> and they're like, yes, for you, it's real. You know, almost mm -hmm. like a Jordan Peterson thing. But uh, so sometimes Lewis has these imaginative exercise, but not something that he's trying to actually describe the nature of the afterlife um but he was a great believer in mythologies you know is that, that sure but he saw mythologies as pointing to something like peter jordan peterson yeah. in some ways as indicative of what's really true mm -hmm. in part through narrative through story um, through psychological episodes um, and how we retell things through rituals and stories um yeah lewis believed in that he was a great believer in that but he would never assume that that was a blueprint for knowing what the afterlife was. He looked to scripture as, as giving us any kind of true knowledge, 
not just partial knowledge of what yeah. could be. Yeah, but when Jesus said, great will be your reward in heaven, does yeah. he mean that, that individual's reward is say, going to be more than mine or somebody else? I say yes. I say yes. Well, so, so that, so but does that mean a greater salvation? But what I mean, it like in that sense, um, greater the reward in heaven, and and I've talked about this quite a lot recently because I've been taking with it quite recently. But um, there isn't, there isn't, a, there are. I believe that there's hierarchies in heaven because. Uh, um, not like the good place. I don't know if you've seen the good place where yeah, she has a small yeah. house and then there's this yeah. massive mansion and uh, I won't give it away, but basically she's jealous and jealousies and pettiness and vanity is all a part of the good place in, in that show um, when it starts. But in heaven, uh, I think that there will be people who are remarkable, not because they were wealthy or famous or beautiful or anything like that on earth, but because they were faithful with a little, God will let them be faithful with a lot in heaven. And their reward will be great because they've been faithful with a little. Um, but there will be some people who have not been faithful with much. And they will enter into the gates of heaven, but they won't be given much. But it doesn't mean that they will enter in and then be envious that they don't have more. They... I believe in the state of heaven that we won't have jealousy or pettisy, um, mm -hmm. pettiness or envy, but what we'll be is like, wow, wow, you trusted God so much. I can't believe that. That's amazing. I love your big house. I mean, metaphorically, right? Yeah. Uh, I I'm glad that you're my leader, you know, because Jesus says some will be leaders of 50, some will be leaders of 500. I, I think that, you know, when you have a good parent, you're not like begrudging them that they're your parent. When they're a good parent, you're like, man, I'm glad that that's my parent. I'm so proud that that's my parent. That's my coach. That's that's the guy or that's the woman who scores all the goals. They're on my team, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you rejoice in those who have excellence. Yeah, as opposed to, you know, someone <laughs> that didn't have good parents, had abusive parents. Right. You know, or didn't have any parents, you know, or, or whatever. And then, so then... You try and compare the good that one does the good that the other does and ultimately it's you trust in god's judgment and it's about the heart it is and and you know like lewis said those that are held choose it you know and essentially we can start down a, a road of self-love or down a road of sacrificial love yeah. and, and and lewis again you know writes that it, become, it becomes a habit you yeah know, we, be, we become part of our basic nature is that we love sacrificially or part of our basic nature that we love selfishly. That's right. And I think in heaven, our imaginations will be redeemed where we see people who have been given positions of authority because they have loved sacrificially, we will rejoice in their character yeah. and we will be thankful for whatever position we have. Um, you know, high, uh, allegorically or not allegorically, analogically, not analogically. I think analogically. The uh, analogy of like, I think that we'll be happy if we're just sweeping the floor of the palace, right? Mm -hmm. I know Tim's ready to sweep floors in heaven. <laughs> I mean, I would be happy to sweep floors in heaven, uh, you know, cook the simplest meals. I'd be so happy to be a sous chef. 
if I'm in the kingdom, it's way better than to be the king over damnation, you know, over a, over a nation of strife. Yeah. Like who wants that? But if you are in, in a team or co-work, like if you ever experienced a work atmosphere or a family atmosphere where there's joy, then there's a joy to serve whatever place you have. Yeah. And, uh, and so I do believe that there's greatest reward in heaven because you've trusted God so much in this life. Um, not because of your appearances or your successes in life, but what, how God has judged it. And then wh whatever we receive in heaven, we'll rejoice in that. It's our heart that ju God judges. That's right. But though I do believe that Jesus is calling us to say, hey, you know, you, you could be ambitious for treasures in heaven. You can be ambitious in your life in me. That doesn't mean you can't be a leader. You can't succeed. But it means that you succeed with God in mind. You succeed with Je you're serving Jesus and success is simply a blessing that you have. As you as you excel in Him, I'm a little clear on that. It seems to me that we we have we have a a line in our service so complex, so simple, so clear, so mysterious. Yeah, and I, I just love that because it really sympathizes because even we block the you know separate the two things. Yeah, it's so simple and so clear. Love God and love your neighbor. It's all about the heart. It's yeah. all about love, and the rest of it is all kind of complex on the side. But it seems to me. We're not called to salvation. We're called to vocation. Mm -hmm. You know, our, our, our vocation is just, you know, it was, as N.T. Wright puts, you know, to reflect God's love into the world. And that's our vocation. And all of this stuff like salvation, everything else, that's, that's, that's God's work. Yeah. But our work, is, our work here is to reflect that love into the world. And everything else, everything else is then you know, with, with God will take care of itself. That's great. I mean, and there's a great, there's a great thing about self-forgetfulness. I'm sorry, self-forgetfulness. Self mm. It's what do they say? It's not that you think less of yourself. It's just that you think of yourself less. Yeah. Um, but there is something that about Jesus is saying, make it your ambition to love and serve because great is your reward. Like, um, service is a wonderful thing. And, and what he's trying to do is turn everything upside down because what we think is, how do I know I'm really succeeding unless my church grows, unless the branch of Labrie grows? Or, you know, I remember this one European, I pointed out this United Church. And, and I was like, this church has had 20 people and it's had 20 people for 40 years. It's never going to grow. And he said, how, how like an American you are. Why are Americans always thinking they have to grow things? Maybe God is happy with that person tending to 20 souls. And I was like, okay, I got put in my place. From that point, I was like, you know, it doesn't matter about the numbers I have here, but I can make it my ambition to try to be excellent with whatever I do. Because I know that God will reward that. Not because I'm seeking that reward, but because I know God rewards that, if, if you see what I mean. It's, it's not that the reward is the matter, but that I want to delight God so that God delights in me. I don't think that that's a well, selfish that's what, thing. I'll try to shut up. But I mean, that's one of the things to me about some, a lot of our evangelism is mm -hmm. basically saying, if, if you buy into these precepts, uh, you know, then you're going you're gonna to do well in the next life. 
and also then you're turning it all back onto the self again, right. which is basically 180 degrees away from what Christ's message is. Or, you know, Christ's message is about service of others instead of looking at it for number one. It's true. But, you know, when Paul says, you know, serve the interest of others before you serve your own. But he's not saying that self-interest is bad. Self-interest is not sinful. Self-interest is, is, is sinful when we, treat, when we treat ourselves less than what God wants us to treat ourselves as. And if we concern ourselves more than others. It's when we can look after the self at the expense of others. That's, that's, that's that that's is the problem. Yeah. But, um, but I, I don't believe it's a sinful desire to want to excel at what God has given us. Oh, absolutely. So for his glory, but and for our delight, you know. So um, uh, we have a statement here. God wouldn't have created rewards if he didn't want us to want them. He just doesn't want us to want things more than we want him. Well said. And I'll take your banana bread anytime. Okay. Okay. If you want to talk to me later, that's fine. Um, any last comments online? That lecture was great, except it should have been done in 10 segments. We could discuss each segment. <laughs> well, then it would be hard for me. So I have to say as much as I can and get away. You know, one of my models of getting away from controversy is to say so much. I bore, I try to bore people through controversy. And I try to be exciting through things that are uncontroversial. Wait a minute, the whole thing is it's just a tip from the top. You might want to take that. Okay. <laughs> Run with it. Okay. Well, thank you.